0: Good morning, ladies. As Rhoda mentioned, my name is Dawn Coons, and I've been part of the Habits Ministry for many years as a participant and as a leader. I'm married and I have four kids, and I have a nephew who is very strong, such that when he throws a basketball and I don't catch it right, he breaks my hand. So if you want to know why I look like I'm conducting things today, it's because of his love for me that I have a broken hand. So I love to study the Word of God. Um, It is amazing to me the mysteries that He hides in there and that He brings about when we take time to be still and hear Him. And so it was a joy to study 2 Samuel, and surprisingly, a real joy during this Christmas season um, because of some things that I uncovered about Christ in the midst of 2 Samuel So let's review a little bit about where we've been. If you'll remember, those who were here last semester, Kathy Gurley did an extensive overview of um, 1 Samuel, right before 1 Samuel started. And really, as Rhoda mentioned, the the whole book is one book. And so I encourage you, if you are starting new this semester, that you go back and um, get the online version of that first lesson that we had and review it in detail. Um, I'm going to use some of her answers because they're the same answers. And you can also turn to page 11 in your book and take notes um, to these answers, because this is the only um, worksheet that you'll have to do for the intro section. So first, let's start with who, is, who wrote the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. It, the human author is unknown, um, so the Holy Spirit was part of that. And then we find in 1 Chronicles 29, 29, the material was compiled from documents written and collected by the prophets Nathan, Gad, and Samuel. To whom was it written? It was written to the people of Israel, and it's their history. And ultimately, it's to all of us who read the Bible, and it's our history, too, as Christians. Okay, a side note. Why do we study the Bible at all? And why do we study the Old Testament when we're living in the New Testament, when Christ has come? Well, there are some sections in 2 Samuel that you're not going to want to read. It leaves you shaking your head. They're sad, and there are really some confusing sections but we actually find our answer as to why we study scripture in second samuel 22:31 this is beautiful take this in this god his way is perfect the word of the lord proves true every every word proves true he is a shield for all those who take refuge in him By reading the word of God, all of it, even the confusing parts and the parts we may not like, we are taking refuge in God and his truth because his ways are perfect. And what you're going to discover soon as we are going through um, this morning is that the words of the Old Testament find their truth and substantiation in Christ. I can't wait to show you this. It's very exciting. Um, we always consider, too, 2 Second Second Timothy 3, 16 through 17, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Listen to this. This caught me anew. That the man of God, man being us and man being Jesus, the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. Christ is the ultimate man of God who was fully equipped for every good work. He is called the Word. Isn't that amazing how that comes around? John 1 tells us that He is the Word. So when we are looking at Scripture, we are looking at Christ, every piece of Scripture. So back to your outline. When was it written? 2 Samuel is set in the land of Israel during the reign of David and follows the course of his 40 years as king of Israel from 1011 to 971 BC. In what style was it written? 2 Samuel is a prose epic of David. It has two movements it's David as king. Um, And the two movements are a period of blessing and success in two through six, followed by a huge moral failure, which most of us, even those who haven't studied the Bible, are probably familiar with, and then the sad consequences of his sin. And then at the end is a conclusion that reflects the good and bad of David's life, and it generates hope for a future king. The literary technique of realism permeates the book as the storyteller refuses to ignore either the good or the bad aspects of the characters. As with 1 Samuel, the story rings true to every human experience. There's good and bad, right? So let's talk about the central themes, and this is what we're going to delve into a little bit more today. Key to the book and to the entire biblical record is 2 Samuel 7:16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This divine promise marked the beginning of an additional covenant called the Davidic Covenant, in which God promised an eternal throne to the house of David. Another theme that we're going to explore is the salvation story. The salvation story is propelled with a combination of past, present, and future events all tying together in the book of 2 Samuel. The overarching theme is that God has a plan. And we saw that a lot in 1 Samuel, too. We'll also see... um, that David is a man after God's own heart. And we'll look at the characteristics that he exhibits that are Christ-like and those that are sinful human. Unfortunately, we also get to see a mini-theme within 2 Samuel of sin and its consequences. This, written in 2 Samuel, is meant as a warning to us and all mankind and a reminder of who we are and who God is. God is a perfectly righteous God, and we are not. And we need a Savior, because left on our own, we will sin. So we need a Savior to right our relationship with God. Okay, so now let's dig a little deeper into a couple of these major themes. Um, Salvation and David as as a human and as a a person who prefigures Christ. So, many of you have heard the salvation story before, but um, I have prayed that you will see it anew as we walk through this. So Adam and Eve were in a perfect relationship with God and they sinned and they broke their perfect unity with God because they thought their way was better, right? Ultimately, that's what sin is. When we go our own way, thinking our ways are better than how God has outlined his ways. So God put into effect his plan to reunite us with him right away. We see this plan played out throughout all of scripture. I love the summary in my ESV Bible. God's plan is to save his people fully and finally to himself, and you can read further about that in Matthew 121 and 2 Timothy 2.10. Christians experience salvation in this life in both past and present tense, and we anticipate salvation in a future sense. Christians have been saved from the penalty of our sins, right? We know that. We are currently being saved from the power of sin. Isn't that beautiful? So right now, even though we are tempted by it, we're currently still being saved from it, and he's with us to do that. And then one day, when God's plan of salvation is completed, and we are with Christ, we shall be like him, and we shall be saved even from the very presence of sin. Amen. I can't wait for that day. This is God's plan. Well, 2 Samuel is a puzzle piece in the furthering of this salvation plan. So let's kind of set the stage for what is happening. And Susie, I didn't check with you, but yep, first map. Okay, this is our first map. You can't see it very well, but the important thing I want you to look at, kind of in the darker brown in the middle, you're going to see um, Jerusalem. Just just know that 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 area, Jerusalem, and um, I can't believe what can't remember what the lower one was. But the importance of looking at this map is not so much the detail, but what has happened prior and what happens in the future at the same location where Second Samuel is set. So after Saul's death, David inquired of God, if he should go to Judah. And God says, yes, and so he goes, and they anoint him king over the house of Judah. So initially, he's just the king over Judah, and then later he becomes the king over all of Israel. And he establishes the city of David, or Jerusalem, which is what is up on that map. But listen to this. Here is the significance of Jerusalem. So David, in proximity-wise, was going after Jerusalem because it made sense location-wise. But God had a bigger plan, Do you know what was happening in Jerusalem many years before that, that we find in Genesis 14, 17? Melchizedek brings out bread and wine to Abram, whose name changes to Abraham, and Abram gives the first known tithe or sacrifice to to Melchizedek. So right after that time, God establishes a formal covenant with Abraham that reiterates the promise that Abraham will become a great nation. So what does all of this have to do with 2 Samuel? Samuel. Second Samuel contends the, continues the progression of that whole story of what was happening. Melchizedek ruled Jerusalem as a priest king, and blessed Abraham with bread and wine. Abraham's descendant is David, who takes Jerusalem back and establishes the city. And then we have Luke two eleven, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Do you see what God is doing? He is orchestrating all of history to bring out his salvation plan. From the time of Melchizedek and Abraham to the time of 2 Samuel and David and the Davidic covenant to the time of Luke, it's all happening right here, and God knew it. God had a plan, and we'll see that salvation plan carry out through all of the Bible. In this time and in this place of 2 Samuel, the salvation story is rumbling. 2 Samuel is a link. Two more things related to the location of the story. The second map, if you want to put that up, Susie. We will hear about Aruna's threshing floor located at the top of Mount Moriah. When you hear that, as we're reading 2 Samuel, I want you to remember that according to Jewish tradition, this is the place where Abraham built an altar to sacrifice his son Isaac. So Abraham and Isaac traveled 50 to 60 miles from Beersheba to Mount Moriah in about three days. This was a very different difficult time for Abraham, who was on his way to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac. Three days and the sacrifice of a son. Where else do you hear that? In 2 Samuel, we have this boost, this propelling of the overall story of salvation that existed from the beginning of time. Abraham, the father of our heritage, who was promised descendants as numerous as the stars, connects to David, who built an altar at what is believed to be the same place that Abraham was set to sacrifice Isaac. And David builds this altar in the city of David where Luke 2 tells us Jesus is born pow, isn't that amazing? That just, I'm floored by that. Do you see it? Do you see a God who knows without a doubt what he is doing and he orchestrates exact moments in history and weaves a beautiful tapestry in due time working out his plan? I just want to soak that in. At the heart of understanding all of these Old Testament books is the truth that they point forward to the suffering of Christ his resurrection, and the subsequent spread of the gospel to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, where our story is set. The Old Testament as a whole, through its promises, its symbols, and its pictures of salvation, looks forward to the actual accomplishment of salvation that took place once for all in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instructions, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. Hope. Right here in the midst of 2 Samuel, in the midst of a treacherous affair, the murder of an innocent man, the resulting consequences of sin, a son who tries to overthrow his father, God continues his plan of salvation. He does this in the midst of our messes, too. He works out his plan for our good and his glory. No sin in your life, no mistake can separate you from God if Christ is your Savior. As we discover in Second Samuel, we do face consequences of sin. The whole second half of Second Samuel chronicles that. But why, if David committed such despicable sins, was he called a man after God's own heart? This I found interesting. <clears throat> God called David a man after his own heart while David was a shepherd boy and before he did anything great. Isn't that amazing to stop and think about? He knows our hearts, and because he knows our future, he can call him a man after his own heart before he did anything. If we'll, we'll recall um, in First Samuel, do you remember how Saul forced himself to give a blessing. And for those who weren't part of our first semester study, he did that because he didn't trust God and wait on God for Samuel to arrive in time to do the blessing. And so he took it upon himself, which was strictly prohibited by God. And Samuel responds to Saul and says, "'You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom of Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue.' The Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. God knew David's heart from the beginning of time. He knew he would fall, and he knew he would fail, but he knew David would continue to repent and worship him even to the end of his life. That is what made David a more suitable king than Saul and why he was a man after God's own heart. My ESV note says that David was a model king and brings blessing to the nation of Israel until he falls into sin with Bathsheba. Though he repents, the remainder of his reign is flawed, pointing to the need for the coming of Christ, the perfect Messiah. So let's look a little bit at David's heart. If you look at your outline, there are several um, characteristics that are defined here. And I don't want to read through all of them because you have them, but in order to understand a little bit of David's heart, we need to take a peek into what he's saying. First of all, David was humble, and I think you'll find that throughout all of Second Samuel, and is the key to all of us truly loving Lord, is being humble and putting ourselves aside and uh, putting God in the forefront. So he was humble. He says from Psalm 62, 9, low-born men are but a breath, the high-born are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. David was trusting. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my, the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27, 1. He was devoted. You have filled my heart with great joy, greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. From Psalm 4, 7 and he was faithful. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23, 6. So knowing David's heart, how did he fall into temptation? Into adultery and murder? And how might we also follow down the slippery slope to sin? I don't want to go into this too deep because I don't want to take away from the speaker that will be um, delving into this sin and their talk. But let's just bring up a few highlights of maybe why David fell into temptation and ways that we can prevent the same slippery slope. So in 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 2, we find that David was not where he was supposed to be. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah But David remained at Jerusalem. So did you hear the beginning of the verse? The time when kings go out to battle. David was the king and he was in Jerusalem. And he was on the couch. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. So here are these men fighting and their king is lounging on the couch. Ladies, I don't want you to fall into temptation. I don't want you to have to endure the consequences of Don't be lazy and allow yourself to slowly slip into a treacherous path. I don't know what uh, that path looks like for you individually. Are you being lazy about what you're watching or lazy about your language? Are you spending too much time with friends or people of the opposite sex? Are you lax in your spending? God has a wonderful, joyous, and fulfilling life for you. Jeremiah 2911 13 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and you seek me with all your heart. Do you see the plans that God has put in place to redeem you? When we look at the Bible and the history of his plan of salvation, he has that plan for your individual lives too. He has orchestrated a beautiful plan. Trust his ways. Trust that his ways and his laws have been put in place to bring you joy, not to burden you. I don't know who here is considering divorce or want out of their marriage or are miserable. It seems that divorce is rampant right now, and God has put this message on my heart. Many people think that um, divorce is freedom, but it's not. It's bondage. I know, I've been there and and will live the consequences forever. My 23-year-old lives with the consequences and will have to endure that his entire life. I don't know what your marriage struggle is. If you're tempted by the lures of someone else, it's fleeting. That's what sin does. It reels you in, making you think things are wonderful, and then pulls the rug right out from under you. Look at David. You will see in 2 Samuel the consequences of his actions. He had a wonderful kingdom and family, and it was destroyed On the other hand, those of us who have been through a divorce can see how God can redeem and can work in the midst of it. I met a wonderful man who brought me to this church, but I still live with the consequences of divorce. I don't want that for you. God can redeem your marriage. Is anything impossible for him? No. Luke 1.27 says, for nothing will be impossible for God. And that's what the angel told Mary when she was to give birth. David's second sin, um, or second slippery slope into temptation, is he looked at Bathsheba, and he kept looking. My guess is he then began to think about Bathsheba more and more, and it consumed him. What temptation are you struggling with, and how often do you think about it? How often do you meditate on it? How much of your energy do you give to it? Philippians 4.8 tells us to think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, and there's more to this verse but please take the time to go look at it and meditate on it, not on the temptation that is stealing your mind. John 10.10 10 tells us that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. God wants us to have an abundant life full of joy. That's why he takes the time to give us instructions, and that's why he sent Jesus to save us. An abundant life now and for eternity. So the third sin, or the third um, step that David took into temptation is his eyes were not focused on God and he went his own way of truth instead of trusting in God's truth. Our God is an awesome God. Oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Romans eleven thirty three. 33. He is kind. He is good. He is majestic. He paints beauty in a sunrise and flexes his power in a storm. He hears your cries and smiles at your laugh. And Zephaniah 3.17 says, He delights over you with singing. God's ways are better than our ways. Trust in that truth so that you may find joy in your life. Will you please stand? And we're going to worship our awesome God.